So there are three themes this morning. Uh, why are we reading from the book of Esther? This may be the only time in the Eucharistic lectionary that we read from Esther. What are some aspects of community life in the church? How do we understand it? Where do we get the stuff that we do now? What are the sources? And is it possible for God to operate outside authorized channels? So you've heard, by the way, I think, the term, the whole Megillah. Have you? Well, Esther is one of the Milagot, the five. All of the wisdom literature in the Hebrew Bible uh, is in a separate section. This is, this is the Hebrew Bible in English. And the translation is from the Jewish Publication Society. So it's an authorized translation. So it, it, Jewish people who can read English would read this. And I like to read these passages in this Bible because uh, the translations are very interesting and also the introductory material. This is like an annotated, an Oxford annotated New Revised Standard Version, only it's the Hebrew Bible published by the Jewish Publication Society. You don't have to get one of these evangelical ones with the floppy cover. You can walk around holding like this, you know that you have your sword with you at all times when you're preaching. But it is interesting to read. So what it says in this commentary before the book begins is that Esther is one of the last books to have got into the canon of the Hebrew Bible. And it probably is there and dates its inclusion or its writing dates from anywhere from 400 B.C. to about 200 B.C. So, you know, scholars differ. But the reason it's here is because it talks about the biblical support for a Jewish festival in the liturgical calendar of the Jews called Purim or Purim, however, they, however it's pronounced. And it's a festival that occurs usually in March and has a movable date, just like Easter. So it's celebrated uh, at various times in that time, March, sometime in there and so forth. And it's about what happened in the book of Esther. So today, uh, and we, we discover that uh, Esther is one of the five milagot. And they're in separate scrolls, five separate scrolls in the cabinet where the scrolls are kept in the synagogue. And I saw a photograph of one uh, on the internet uh, a few days ago that's in a wooden tube. Esther's in the wooden one, and the other four are wrapped like the Torah scroll. So it depends on where you go. It's read almost everywhere on Purim. Not everywhere, but most everywhere in Judaism. So, what's the story? Oh, I should, I wanted to say this. Megillah is, a, is most widely used as a term for the book of Esther, even though it is applied to the rest uh, of the books as well. Song of Solomon, the book of Ruth, the book of Lamentations, Ecclesiastes, and the book of Esther. They're the Milagot. But Megillah 
is the term also used in a joking way in reference to any lengthy story. Right? So if somebody is speaking to you, you got the whole Megillah. My southern classmates in seminary said the whole nine yards was the whole nine yards. You got it. So today, Queen Esther is with the king of Persia, and he's Ahasuerus. It's a hard name to pronounce, but his name is Greek was probably Xerxes I. You've heard that name, X-E-R-E-S. And so she's eating with him, and she's eating with Haman, who's a big shot in the kingdom. And it turns out in the story that Haman is responsible for sending out an edict that says we're going to kill all of the Jews in the kingdom. We're going to slaughter the Jews. And the king of Persia is, out, is outraged and he said, who is responsible for this? And she says, Haman, your servant Haman. So he said, that is a, that's a terrible thing. We're going to hang Haman. And it's suggested that they hang him from the gallows that Haman built to hang Mordecai, who's in the story as well. And so they take him down to Haman's house and they hang him. You know, there's stuff in the Hebrew Bible. A lot of people just go, why, gee, why do we have to listen to this stuff? You know, it's pretty rough. And by virtue of Queen Esther's work, uh, the Jews were saved. So whenever I read from the book of Esther, I ask myself, the commentary I read uh, this week about Esther, it says, recounts how a series of happy coincidences allied with the courage and wisdom of the Jewish woman Esther so successfully averted the threat that not a single Jewish life was lost. So, suppose you're at, at Purim in 1948 or 49, and you're a Jew, and you've gone to the synagogue, and they're reading. They read through, the, it's sundown on day one, through the day, second day, sundown, okay? So then you have services in the synagogue and you're in there and you're listening to the book of Esther and you have just had, you have survived the Holocaust, the Shoah. How would you think about God's work in the world? Esther was responsible for saving the Jews and this time, no. Or it appeared to be no. More to the point, what if you were a Christian in, a, in an Episcopalian church in 1948 and this lesson was read after the war and you began to think to yourself, what were we doing in 1933 when this whole enterprise got underway?
The priest I began my ministry with in Tucson, Arizona, was in Munster, Germany once with a friend of his who had been an Episcopal priest and became a Roman Catholic priest. And he was getting, he, uh, the, the Roman Catholic priest was getting an advanced degree at the University of Munster in Germany. And he lived in a parish with uh, Monsignor Brechtold, or whatever his name was, a very distinguished priest in the Roman Catholic Church in Germany. And they were having dinner together. Very interesting conversation. And typical of Father Fowler, the priest I began my ministry with, it's something I actually don't know whether I have had a failure of nerve, but I learned what not to do. It's always that. He said to him, the Monsignor at dinner, he said, what did you do when you were in Munster during the war and all of a sudden all the Jews were gone? There were no more Jews in Munster. Did you say anything? Did you ask anybody where they went? You know, I think that about, right, so suppose we woke up tomorrow and all the Jews were gone from Los Gatos. Would any of us say, where are the Jews? What happened to the Jews? What happened to Rabbi Melanie and all the people at Shir Hadash? They're not here. And the Monsignor gave an answer that I would be perfectly capable of. Well, you know, it's very difficult here. We, had, we didn't know uh, there were things. So whenever I read this, I think about that. I think about how Esther was able to save the day, but this was way bigger than Esther would happen and it required maybe the help from all kinds of people. Maybe this Pope who, who was here recently just had some things to say generally about how we're supposed to comport ourselves in the world and who we should be friends with. One of his closest friends is a rabbi from Argentina and they were on a television show together uh, for a long time, a call-in radio show and on television in Buenos Aires. Interesting. So Esther does talk to some degree about how God is present, but also a word to us about the necessity to cooperate with the divine initiative. So that's a good segue into the letter of, of James, because James is talking about practices. He's talking about the practices of the church and what it is that uh, we ought to do and some of the things that he mentions there are things that are part of the church's life now. Intercessory prayer that we do at the liturgy, praying for one another, praying for the world, praying for the concerns of the community, asking God for help. You know, I haven't been very good in my own personal spiritual life about saying, God, please help me. Please help me. So James says you need to be concerned about that. You need to be concerned with the people in your community that suffer. Not just St. Luke's, but beyond that. 
We have a sacramental process that can be undertaken when people are sick or in the hospital. They can be visited by the clergy and anointed with oil and prayed over. One of the great triumphs of the, of the liturgical renewal in the life of the Western churches was the fact that we restored the anointing of the sick to its proper place because the technical name for that as a sacrament is unction. And it used to be called, before this, extreme unction, which meant that Father Brewer showed up when you were about ready to go to God and anointed you. We still do that. But this sacrament of anointing is a continuous process in the life of the church. And James speaks about that. And then he speaks about the importance of seeking those who have uh, gone away or lost their faith, who are, who are uh, in some way uh, have just stepped away from this, to go after them and to uh, speak to people who have fallen away, to reach out. And he, James says, when you do that, it covers a multitude of sins. Somebody said to me at 8 o'clock at the door, gee, that's where I guess you get covers a multitude of sins from. You do you think? Right? Uh, I'm sure there are some Christians that would say this is not the right way to interpret this because it has something to do with compromising uh, the uh, view that we are saved by our faith alone. So I want to say something briefly about that. Anglican Christians, Episcopalians, are the inheritors of a great tradition that's now 500 years old. And Anglicanism was deeply influenced by the Continental Reformation in Europe. And it seemed that as time went on, that part of Anglicanism was most um, uh, seduced by Calvinism. John Calvin, not Luther. Luther for a while and then Calvin in the Reformed tradition. And right along it in a parallel was the Catholic tradition which Anglican Christians said, we cannot jettison this. This is absolutely too important and too essential and too central to our common life together. It's one of the reasons why we call ourselves Anglo-Catholics at St. Luke's. All those things that are part of that tradition are important and essential. But we have a different view of the idea. Even though Calvin was uh, very influential in our life, we say... Uh, this we are saved by God's grace by faith there is nothing that we can do ourselves to save us but in the great western tradition we say faith cannot be understood apart from hope and charity or the contemporary translation of charity in many places is love, for hope and love. And of course, those are active, aren't they? Those are active undertakings. It's something that we have. We have faith, but we have the hope in God's providence and the belief that we need to cooperate with it. 
and we understand that somehow embodied in that is the necessity to reach out and to go beyond. We heard a lot about that in the last three or four days, how we do that, and that it's an important thing to do. So when we say it covers a multitude of sins, it means that it has the transformative power to make us understand more clearly who we are and what we're here to do. And James is getting at that when he's speaking about this uh, today. And he's also telling us something about how his church was constituted in some ways. That ancient, one of the ancient models. So in Mark's gospel today, we have a mixed bag. The first part is the one that I like and will probably focus on mainly. And the second part it could be interpreted as an invitation to self-mutilation in order to live a life consistent with God's purposes for us. So, it's important, as O.C. Edwards used to tell us, not what the Bible says, but what it means. And it's important to be a student, because if you read that and took it literally, we'd be all in a big jam, wouldn't we? There are actually people who have taken that literally in the history of the church. And they have written about it and commended it to people. But before I get into that, the story begins with John saying to Jesus that they have run into people who are casting out demons in Jesus' name. And they are not one of us. And Jesus, in so many words, says, don't worry about that. If anybody is in for me and does that, sooner or later, they're not going to be able to be an opponent of my preaching and teaching. They're going to now be, live a life consistent with that. Why did Mark preserve this saying of Jesus? And it was because in his own community, That's what they were struggling with. So here's maybe more information than you need. But Mark, in all probability, was a Hellenized Jew. A Jew influenced by Greek thinking in the diaspora. And he understood those categories. And all of a sudden, there were people who were influenced by Hellenism, Greek thought, who were Gentiles and not Jews. And they were persuaded by the teaching of Jesus and the Christian message. And they believed that Jesus was the Messiah and the Savior. And they have started now to become part of that community. And so they're struggling, just like Matthew is, in a slightly different way, with what do we do with these people? Ethne, those people... Are they going to be in or are they going to be out? And how do we understand what that means for us? So Jesus is saying we need to allow the free play of God's spirit to be at work in the world. And sometimes from unauthorized channels, we hear the wisdom of God and we see made manifest the wisdom of God. Now, the second part, I'm just going to say this about it. 
Uh, Jesus elsewhere in the Gospels speaks about things in a hyperbolic fashion. Huge exaggerations. And so when I read that text for myself, I'm sitting with the Bible on my lap or the lectionary thinking thoughts. I'm saying this is a passage about the self-regulation of instinctual desires. Rabbi Edwin Friedman used to say that that's part of coming to some form of emotional, spiritual, mental health. Right? Because we're hardwired to do certain things. But one of the things we learn over time is that we have to have what sometimes is referred to as impulse control. Right? Self-regulation of instinctual desires. The things that you're regulating are good in and of themselves and necessary for our humanity. But we're all called to have custody over those things in some way. And if there are people within our communities who have great difficulty with that, we're there to be there for them in some form. Even if it's to speak uh, the truth to power, we need to do it. And we need to uh, not shirk from that responsibility. So when you read passages about that, maybe that's a way to, to get into that, you know. Christianity is replete with people who take things literally. Let me, one of the things that the Pope did when he came was to canonize Father Junipero Serra. You know, I'm a native California. My family came here before the gold rush. He was a huge, he was huge in the history of California. You know, before California was a state, when it was the Spanish had it, you know, and all that. And he established all these missions. He was a Franciscan. <clears throat> and he engaged in his own personal piety in great acts of self-mutilation. He whipped himself. One time he was preaching a sermon and he held a stone in his hand and hit his chest while he was preaching the sermon. And he injured himself very badly. And I don't think it was one of the things he never recovered from. Well... I'm not so sure that's necessary to do to achieve some species of sanctity, you know. Some people might even say that it's sick, but you always have to understand the context in that sense, you know. And maybe self-regulation of instinctual desires also has something to do with how you understand your own self-loathing and what you do in your life to punish yourself. Not, not God's plan for, for, for humanity. And that may be something we learn in this hyperbolic commentary that Jesus has in today's gospel. So, uh, give thanks for some things for the coming week. What I would suggest is that God's protecting love is one. 
that we should give thanks for, for beauty, wisdom, and the good. Pray for those you know who need your prayers. See if you have an opportunity to share your greatest place of safety and assurance. Finally, give thanks for God's abundance and care. Don't second-guess the processes of God with regard to who is an authentic spokesperson and who isn't. Be generous with your time, your talent, and your treasure. Amen.